Welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And you're listening to a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. All right, so this week we are super excited to bring you this exclusive interview. I say exclusive because it was a live event where we invited about 50 people that Vadim has been teaching from all over the world that came to learn entrepreneurship as part of this program called Trep Camp. And we interviewed one of the teams that I have been working with here for about a year that just finished our accelerator program. They are a sustainable paper product company that sells their products to restaurants, distributors, large organizations that need to buy things like straws and knives and cutlery, but want to do it in a sustainable way. There's a whole movement against plastic. And we found out how this group of three college students built this company from the ground up where they are now growing and they're one of the more successful companies in NYU. I'm always incredibly impressed at the level of understanding, the level of business savvy that people that young can have and Antonio, Sophie, and Echo uh, all embody that. They are experts in every sense of the word. I mean, if you're young or older, it's amazing to hear from these entrepreneurs because the way that they speak about the business, uh, their understanding of their market, clearly the help that they got from NYU has really worked out and now they're building a company that I think has a ton of potential. We're going to talk about how they thought of the idea, how Antonio put the team together in the first place, how they got to market, how they got their first capital. A lot of great takeaways here. As usual, with these live interviews, we really tried to do no editing. So you're going to hear end-to-end exactly how our conversation went as if you were in the live audience that day. Please enjoy this episode with C-Straws. All right, we're going to get started. Welcome back to The The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today we have the founding team of Seastraws. I'm going to let them tell you about what they're building here at NYU. But they started the business about a year ago. They're going through the NYU Entrepreneurial Institute Summer Launchpad Program. And in front of me, I have Antonio DiMeglio, Sophie Kennedy, and Echo Chen, who are the three co-founders of the business. Um, I've been getting to know this team uh, pretty closely over the last year, but absolutely very closely over the next last nine weeks as they've been... Um, executing on their business through the Summer Launchpad program and hitting on their goals. And we're going to talk a little bit about how they got their business off the ground. And again, it's called Seastraw. So uh, maybe, Antonio, if you can start us off. Uh, I know that you've been working on this business diligently and very seriously over the last year. In fact, uh, I've seen you uh, and a group of probably like eight team members and, <laughs> and interns that you've somehow attracted to your team at such an early stage, which I think is actually really impressive. Uh, one of the things I want to get into is how you built your team, uh, but you, you certainly use the space here to build your company. But take us back to how this came about, because I don't know if you knew that you were going to be an entrepreneur, if you thought that you were going to start a company in college. Vadim and I tend to think that starting a business in college actually is one of the best times to start a company because you have a lot of freedom, flexibility, and support. But tell us how this idea came about and what actually led you to launching Seastraws. Thanks for that question, Sergey. So I kind of always knew that I liked the hospitality business. So let's start there. So in high school, I was actually a trained chef. I went to like a vocational high school, and I were in the culinary arts and hospitality administration. And my first job was actually in the New York Hilton Midtown, which is the largest hotel in New York City, and I was in the catering department. 
So it was a really crazy atmosphere with big events and everything like that. And when it came to college, I said, okay, let's go to NYU Stern. I'll get a more broader education, kind of move away from just culinary things. Now, I used to play pickup basketball every night at the Palladium, which is a, um, you know, a gym on 14th Street with my best friend. And we would leave at around 11, 11 o'clock-ish, and we would be hungry, and we would go to the McDonald's. And we would get this one smoothie. It was a mango pineapple smoothie. And actually, we used to call it the Aruba, you know, named after the place in the Caribbean. Now, when we would get this smoothie, I would see that there was so much plastic that came with it. It would be a cup in a little, in a little cup, and it would have the straw on it, and it would be in a plastic bag, and there would be napkins and everything like that. And I would be like, dude, this is, like, so much waste. Like, how – like, somebody's going to change this, Right. And then that's basically where sea straws came from, was out of those smoothies. So combining my passion for hospitality with seeing those smoothies, and also the fact that I used to go to the Jersey Shore a lot as a kid. So those three things together kind of made me aware of the issue of plastic pollution in our oceans from a long time ago, and kind of allowed us to really get going after only a couple months. Now, how do you go from, dude, there's so much plastic here, <laughs> to actually starting a company? Because, you know... First of all, there's obviously competition, right? You have to think about. You have to think about how do you get to market. There's so many question marks. What made you think that you're the one to actually solve this problem of of trying to reduce the amount of plastic waste? Well, for me specifically, I really liked the restaurant industry and was confident in my ability to succeed there. But this first step that I took was actually building out the team. And I think it's super important to say that sometimes the people that you're already working with or the people that you already know may actually be the best business partners and you've just never thought of it before. So Echo and I, for example, were actually working beforehand at a coffee startup where I started out in sales, ended up becoming chief revenue officer. Echo and I built two brands for this coffee company in Brooklyn together for ourselves. And we recognized that we worked pretty well together. And so the first step, I think, was taking, you know, having a little meeting with Echo, presenting the idea to her and getting the brand out there from the first from the first day. And that was like super important. So when you guys were working on, on that other startup and you became chief revenue officer, were you already in college? Yeah, I was in college. So I started off as just a sales intern, uh, actually. And I was just learning the ropes, but I had had the experience in hospitality before. So at first I was buying in a big organization. So it was actually one of the only the 10 hotels that's actually owned by Hilton Worldwide, which is a you know, huge hotel chain. Uh, so I was in purchasing there, basically, and then moved from there to actually selling in a small company. So now I was in creating a small company that I was hoping to sell products to big clients, right? So being able to really get that out there was, was super important for you know, learning what the first steps were going to be. How did you find time to be chief revenue officer while in school? Uh, well, most of the work was actually when I was abroad. So I went abroad. So I started in the summer and then I went abroad and I stuck to it. And I used to sit in a room in Florence. I used to call my office uh, and there was a small desk. Three of them, there were olive branches and everything outside. Uh, but every day I would have a list of leads and I would do sales. And, you know, because I was abroad, I would have three, two to three hours every day to work on it. Would come back and have a really nice Italian dinner. Uh, but it's important to note that when I was abroad was actually when I met some of our other team members. So two out of my three roommates in Florence ended up working for Sea Straws. Sophie and I was, were actually on the first cab coming back from the airport to our dorm in Florence. So we weren't on the same flight or anything like that. This was not an NYU cab. We just ended up being on that same cab. And now here we are today. Uh, so a lot of these things were super unlikely, but I kind of segmented my time in a really specific way, especially when I was abroad and afterwards, uh, to kind of meet the correct people that were able to come together and start Seastros. Now, how did you learn how to do sales and, and roast through the ranks to, to CRO even at the startup? Because it, I think a lot of undergrads in college, they sort of give themselves the excuse of like, well, I don't know sort of how to do sales or I don't know how to do this functional role in this company. And they kind of take a little bit of a backseat when it comes to internships. What did you do? And more importantly, I mean, when you're starting off in sales, if it's your first time, 
you kind of suck, or at least I did the first yeah. the first sales job that I had. So how'd you get past that? So I mean, the CEO of our company really like armed me well with like a lot of leads every day. Like we were sending out hundreds and hundreds of emails every day. And Sophie's starting to learn this now um, at Sea Straws. But, you know, it was a super big market because it was just office coffee service, right? So we're trying to sell office coffee to offices. And there are offices literally like all around New York City. So every office, whether you're five person, 50 people or 5,000 people, were eligible for the service in some, some form of way, right? So the best thing that I learned actually when first starting off was that you need to talk to your customers, right? So I was able to talk to people, get calls scheduled super fast to really learn about how that worked. And the same thing applied to Sea Straws when we first started I just contacted a bunch of local cafes honestly right here in the New York's in the Washington Square Park area was able to connect with them and then kind of say hey how do you order these products you know what what are the different products that you're looking at and that was when straws weren't even cool this was over a year ago at this point this was in spring of 2018 so before Starbucks made the change and everything like that so talking to the customers and getting out of the building and really talking to people not only on your team but outside of your team as well was the most important thing to me so let's then back up to the spring of 2018 when you identify this problem and you decide, you know what, we need to, we need to somehow be the ones to do this. What was that first step that you took to actually saying, okay, this is going to be a company. You're actually proving, hey, how am I going to see if this concept is going to be sustainable? Right. So the first, I knew that brand building was huge, and I knew that I wanted to work with Echo, honestly. So Echo and I were together in, the, on the, in this one office room really trying to figure out what this brand was going to be, and we got lucky enough to get our first lead after our third Instagram post. So, wait, so let's back up a, again yeah. a little bit. Actually, if you can pass the mic to Echo. Echo, what did Antonio say to convince you to join his team? Because at that point, it was just an idea, right? Right. So um, to give a little bit of background on that question, um, I have a background in like the creative industry. I've been freelancing photography and illustration for years. Um, and my connection to sustainability is actually, I grew up in like a farm town. And like when I was little in elementary school, I used to paint the Earth Day mural because when you're creative and you're a kid, they just kind of like throw you into these things. <laughs> um, and I just remember like watching like the park rangers from our um, town, like Parks and Rec Department come in and talk about all they're doing like for the Earth. And I was thinking like, wow, it'd be awesome if I could do that. But how do I combine that with my passion for art and for uh, just like creating things. So when Antonio came to me with this idea, uh, it was like the perfect combination of my love for the environment, for the earth, and the ability to use my creative skills for good. Hmm. And Antonio, what was the idea at that point that you had that you came to Echo with? Huh. So I had a small sample of straws in a little, a little bag. And I showed it to Echo and I said, I think we want to do these straws. There was one thing that I think that I knew that I wanted to sell. I knew I wanted to do paper straws because I wanted to be you know, sustainable and everything like that. But I knew that the brand was going to be super important. So I presented to her the concept of building a brand because one of the things that we had done in the coffee company was build a brand like it was a B2C product before a B2B audience. And that's something that I'm a firm believer in and that you've probably heard me say way too many times at this point. Um, but I knew that we wanted to build a brand around it. And the one thing that I knew I wanted to sell at that point was that, if you remember this correctly, I gave you the straws. It had all the different colors. I said, only take pictures of the white and the black ones because I wanted us to stand out and to really build something that seemed serious and modern and elegant from the beginning instead of just being like a party thing that, you know, paper straws had been before. Interesting. Now, did you know at this point who you were going to sell into? Did you have some target accounts you started going after? Local restaurants were the first thing. So I just compiled the email list. Like I had known from the earlier job that email outreach was the best thing for small accounts, right? To make small amounts of money, like $100, $150, which is like a typical case for a restaurant, right? Per month. So, 
per month typically. It's funny that you say that actually. So because the company that Echo and I worked at before was a subscription-based company, we actually thought that subscription would be the best thing. So think about this, selling straws to restaurants on a monthly subscription. No restaurant purchases items like that. We learned that really quickly. We had no idea about the concept of distribution or how that worked at all. But because we got out of the building, we, we learned that. And you know, we did, I did some short emails and was able to connect with some restaurant owners who were really able to give feedback both on pricing, product, and everything like that. Interesting. So it's starting to add up a little bit, the story at least. You know, you had some direct experience in the industry, at the very least selling to SMBs. You got to learn the ropes through somebody else. You were empowered by somebody else and started developing those skills. And I guess you were savvy enough to also start recognizing that the people that you go to school with or the people that you surround yourself with are probably going to be the people on your team too. Right. And since you were brand forward and you had identified that Echo had those skills as a creative, then it kind of feels like it was a no-brainer to get started with Echo. Absolutely. But then it's also important to note that I needed Sophie as well, right? So Sophie came into the project when we were at the point where we got our our first lead. It wasn't our first restaurant lead, but our first channel partnership lead, let's call it. And it was from this organization called the Surfrider Foundation. They're one of the largest marine and ocean-friendly nonprofits in the entire world. And we got that after our third Instagram post. It was actually the president of the Australia chapter. DM'd us on Instagram and connected us to one of their leaders in the U.S. chapter, who then said that, okay, we have this thing called the Ocean Friendly Restaurant Program that is over 500-plus restaurants nationwide. We're looking for paper straws because there's a supply issue right now. And that was a huge first step in terms of really developing who our customer base was going to be and also noting what channel partnerships were going to get us there, right? So we end up talking to them, or I ended up talking to them, and learning that they're a nonprofit and all these things about sustainability. And I was like, crap. Which one of my friends, which person, what, peop, what person do I know that has the most experience in sustainability that's also a hustler and is uniquely fit to help us? And that's where Sophie came in. It's funny that you say that because I messaged you on LinkedIn when I saw you started Sea Straws because my background in sustainability and really my love for the ocean. And I said, Antonio, like, what's this project? I want to know more. And uh, he actually messaged me back on LinkedIn and said, I can't believe you didn't just text me. <laughs> so we met for a coffee at Starbucks knowing, you know, who knew that Starbucks then would ban plastic straws that July. Uh, and really kind of he said, hey, will you be my chief sustainability officer? Um, and I said, yes, my to kind of explain why I guess I fit that position. Um, I grew up in a house that never recycled. I had no idea like that sustainability would be my passion until I went to boarding school where I learned quickly how to recycle and then I went and lived in a sustainable community called the Island School um, over the summer in the Bahamas, um, which is a really incredible place. You're you know, running off of solar power. If you take longer than a two minute shower, people actually like, pull you out. Um, and then I did coral research in Bermuda uh, and went and worked at two non- a couple of nonprofits, Plastic Tides and Blue Sphere Foundation. So I was really focused on plastic pollution. I even made a dress out of plastic bags to protest plastic on my high school campus. Interesting, wow, so you, you were obviously personally very I guess, involved and invested and interested in this problem. Yes, and in fact, I did a huge report on the Surfrider Foundation uh, just the summer before Antonio and I um, met for coffee. And so I said, hey, I actually know a lot about this foundation. Let's chat. So Antonio, you mentioned something about, I guess, the characteristic of the co-founders that you were looking for, and you just used the word hustler, which I love and hate, but it is a good adjective to explain what you're talking about. How did you know that uh, Sophie was a hustler and would be so on your team? 
Well, Sophie and I actually did some work with the EU when we were in Florence. So we actually were on a climate change and uh, migration, you know, study group, basically, where it was called the EU in, For- sorry, EU in Focus program, in which a group of NYU students that you had to apply for this program were actually, we met once a week or something like that, and we had to do our own research reports that we then went to Brussels in, like, two or three months later to present to officials at the EU, like actual commissioners in Brussels. And considering how important climate change is to everyone, I knew that, you know, working with Sophie on this was kind of a a no-brainer, right? So we ended up being a part of this group. We had experience working together. We even did a marketing project together. That was was definitely a hustler project. It was a month, it was a semester-long marketing project. Um, So we definitely learned a lot about each other's work ethics and stuff like that. So I knew from all of those things, especially being in Florence, especially being abroad and getting to put ourselves out there like that, that she'd be a great fit for it. And with Echo, we we literally created two brands together. And our other co-founder, Nassarg, was one of my closest friends from the first day I was in Stern freshman year. Uh, But we were in student council together. I was vice president. He was something else. Like we always had, you know, each other's backs in a lot of different ways. I knew he would be a hard worker for this, too. Got it. So it wasn't just three friends that happened to be friends and liked uh, liked each other that started a company. You hear about that, you know, kids starting a company in dorm room. No, you guys actually had real experience working together and seeing the output of the other person and, and, and the ethic that that person puts in into their work. 100%. Yeah. Uh, makes a lot of sense now. So it sounds almost like the, the fact that you decided to get into straws first, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, was it an accidental choice that it ended up happening to be this thing where all these states are starting to ban straws that you actually you know, decided to go with straws as your initial product and that ended up fitting the timing in the market so well? Or was that deliberate? I don't think we were lucky, but I think we were definitely a bit prescient, right? And literally, like, uh, the main thing was just going to McDonald's and, and seeing all this waste. And I knew that there was going to be a lot of barriers to entry to entering some things. Like, cups, for example, they still haven't solved those problems. None of the cups you have, whether they're compostable or not, and a cut a coffee shop or at a McDonald's or any fast food place are recyclable in any way. So basically what we said with the straws, what I found out really quickly is that they're actually super easy to make. Like, we were able to find some suppliers that other people weren't able to, and we knew that at this time there was a supply crunch from our main competitor at, the, at that point. So we said, okay, there's solutions in supply and demand, so we might as well move forward with it. So how is it that large manufacturers of paper straws were not able to fulfill supply and you were able to find a supplier that could? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Honestly, I'm just good at Google. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that comes down to a lot of different things. Like when I was working at Lux Beverage, a coffee company, for example, I had been an expert at finding people's emails, um, you know, really good at just searching and scouring the internet for things that people didn't find before. Uh, so that's probably what I would attribute it to the most. Um, but it's important to note though, that with, with the supplier that we're using right now, they came to us with the, not a problem, but they're looking for a core partner to work with. And, you know, we're still their main core partner and we're super excited to continue working with them. So that choice was definitely a lot more deliberate than than our initial choices. Now, this first supplier that you had, was there a minimum order size that you had to get when you when you got to them? Uh, yeah, so that was that was a bit tricky. It did require a bit of upfront, upfront investment, but honestly, I got this really small stipend, not really small, but it was enough from the Stern, it was called the Stern Social Impact Stipend. That was, um, it was like $1,500 or something like that. But even that was able to like really help me like kickstart things and like place that initial order. I mean, it wasn't anything huge. We're working with broader manufacturing now that definitely has a lot higher of a minimum order for even the smaller things like, I don't know, the, the boxes or whatever. But, you know, for now on, but at the beginning, you know, we're kind of able to just have a little bit of a boost to get to the next step. 
Interesting. So you have this supplier now uh, that you're building a relationship with. You're getting some sales, or at least you identified a target. You're going after those sales. Talk about how that sales process evolved. Um, you know, how did you figure out what numbers you should hit? Uh, how did you formalize this into a real business? So everything changed once we started with distribution. So we had a meeting at the Uncommons, which is a board game cafe, really close to the Washington Square Park. And basically, I met with a guy, his name was Uriel Clavijo, and he was really cool, but he said that I can't order from you unless you're through our distributor. Who was he? So he was, the, he was, one, of the, he was one of the managers of the small cafe called the Uncommons. Okay. Yeah. And he said, I cannot order from you, though, because just when people use the distributor, they're so accustomed to ordering everything from them that they'll never order anything outside of it. So we got a direct... Um, you know, a direct link to Jorge Salcedo, who is the founder of Two Rise Supplies, which is a super, um, you know, it's an excellent paper and janitorial supplies company that distributes over 300 plus restaurants in New York City, based in St. Albans, which is right on the border of um, Queens and Long Island. And we had our first meeting with him, and he said, okay, this is how it works. This is how distribution works. There's not like a revenue share or anything like that. You don't need to do anything crazy. You just need to wholesale the product. And we'll be able to ship it out directly for you. You just need to send us the bulk orders. And I was like, crap, like, this is how it works. This is the big leagues. And I remember going to Nisarg when we first, when we first got there. And it was small. These were only 10 or 15 case orders at the time. But I was like, Nisarg, this is the big leagues. So once we got to the distribution, realized, okay, this is the main path. And I think to this day, we're learning that although people do purchase from our website, the main outlet for uh, restaurants to purchase is distribution, and now we're looking to work with the bigger ones too. So that was a big change. So what what were the what was the size of the initial few orders that you got, and how did you get those first few in the door? Yeah, so our um, our first order was I think ten cases. Uh, that was it at, from Two Rise Supplies. And how much how much did you get paid for that? What was the revenue? So it was one hundred and sixty per case, which for a distribution order is incredibly high right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was sixteen hundred total. So mm-hmm. that was big at the, at the start, though. Yeah. Got it. And and now a year later, what's the average order size that you see through a decent size uh, distributor that you have? Well, even from that one, for example, like our latest order with him was twenty four cases. So you know, his ordering actually increased four hundred percent on a quarterly basis from the first quarter of our business to the last quarter. Mm-hmm. So we're we're super excited to continue working with him. And we've also expanded products with him. He just uh, set, uh, placed his second purchase of our wooden cutlery. So it's been a really great relationship, and we continue to build you know, beyond just paper straws. Hmm. Interesting. So l- let me get this straight to make sure that I have the story right. You were in a meeting, essentially, with, the, with the, one of the managers at Uncommons, and he was the one that then connected you to this uh, wholesaler, right? Yes, Distributor uh, yes. that you were, and just through that relationship that you couldn't have predicted, obviously, until you Never. got into that meeting, Never. you got an opportunity to then level up your business and actually start scaling. One hundred percent, and that was uh, May. It was the day after school, and this was May eighteenth, two thousand eighteen, at nine a.m. That was our meeting with Oriel, and then immediately that day, he connected us to Jorge, and I had my first phone call with him on that day. I love that you remember the day, time, probably weather outside as well. <laughs> uh, but I think that's actually a great thing to to underscore here, especially to the folks in this room, to the audience or anybody that's listening uh, that's building their business and trying to figure out, do I have all the things answered, right? Am I doing the right things? Well, I mean, I'll tell you right now, doing the right things is getting out there and meeting people and actually acting towards building your business. But you can't predict every single step of the way. You can't predict every introduction you're going to get or even every decision that you're going to make in the future about where the business should go and how your strategy should change. The only thing you can do is get out there, try to execute somehow, and things will start happening as they obviously did for you. 100%. 
So let's let's talk about how you actually again went from getting a few initial orders to turning into turning this into a real business with a repeatable process. And mind you, you're actually doing this while you're still a student. Um, Sophie, you you just graduated, right? Yes, I uh, finished in December actually, which okay. was really lucky for the company and myself. Got it. Um, but uh, I walked in May. Okay, very cool. And I know Antonio, you took a little bit of a leave of absence um, in that time frame as well. Yep. But uh, you started going through distribution channels and fulfilling that order. And you know, one of the things I'm actually curious about is how you're able, to, how you were able to convince these distributors and these restaurants to use you, a little startup, as their supplier. When even though there was a supply crunch, I'm sure that if they really wanted paper straws, they could find them somewhere. So, what did you say to them to convince them to use you? So let's use another example now. Let's get from Jorge to, who was very personal connection, was our biggest advocate, still is our biggest advocate to this day, to now EcoPoint, which is a distributor in San Francisco. Um, so they actually carry our product, and they came to us because the Surfrider Foundation, which actually has like 30 different, uh, more than 30, 50 plus chapters in different cities around the country um, that send different email blasts to their members and everything like that. And he saw that we were mentioned in one of their email blasts in the San Francisco chapter, and he was able, and he wanted to move forward with us because we had that endorsement. So I said, okay, if they're good for Surfrider, they're good for us. The Surfrider thing was no joke. I had to hire a lawyer. It was, everything was really crazy, and it was within literally the first 30 days of selling product. And for us to be able to have that sense of legitimacy, also doing things like becoming a B Corp, like, like we're a certified B Corp pending startup. Uh, as of this month, we're hopefully going to become a certified B Corp because you need it for one year once you're still a startup. And you know, as we move forward, we've really found that certifications and sustainability is super important. We actually had a team meeting um, with one of the buyers and representatives from Surfrider Foundation uh, right in FIDI and he came into the room and looked at all of us and the first thing he said was how old are you guys <laughs> uh, and so just that night after we had a team meeting with all of our team members at Seastraws and Antonio asked us you know how do we really legitimize this business uh, especially when we're going into meetings and it's a really relationship-based industry the hospitality and restaurant industry um, so how do we you know legitimize a college startup and you know move people beyond the fact that we look so young I think Nasark was only 18 or something at the time yeah. I was the oldest in the room at 21 well, so so you created legitimacy by partnering with these nonprofits that have a brand, have legitimacy in the market, and if they put their name behind you, then sort of everything falls in line? 100%. Yeah, and that's what's really benefited us is that our part of our innovation, if there's not a lot of innovation in our product, there is a lot of innovation in our business model. Yeah. Interesting. So these sustainability-focused nonprofits, again, not to belabor this point, but I would imagine that there are so many companies that they would partner with. Why do you think they were excited to partner with you? So, I mean, I, I really hate to say that it's a personal connection thing, but I, I think when you look at, especially the three of us out here, me, Sophie, and Echo, you, you really think that this is something that's genuine, right? This is a very personal thing for all of us, right? Like, this is something that we are passionate about and that comes across very well in the meeting. And I have to say that we, we have consistently presented ourselves well in every single meeting, even if it wasn't for a customer. And, you know, that's, there isn't, like, any specific secret sauce, I would say, but it really was a combination of having a brand that really stood for something immediately. Even our first website, which was a Weebly website that I made overnight when I was living in a dorm still, like, to, to now, I think that, like, it's still been super important for us to really get our mission out there and prove that we are the leader in mission-driven paper straws, even though we barely had any sales at the time. Yeah, I think we actually just watched a video of, you know, some of the representatives from major, other major, you know, paper products corporations. And 
they don't embody sustainability like sea straws. It's at the core of everything we do, whether it's the product, our Instagram post. I mean, we're not even just talking about the importance of backyard compostable products on our Instagram, but like sustainable lifestyles as a whole, which Echo can always dive into as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually a big part of why these um, big nonprofits want to work with us, uh, because we're one of, I think, like the few sustainable product companies that really put an emphasis on education and advocacy in addition to buying our sustainable products, uh, because we not only want our consumers to switch to more sustainable products, but also want to um, just give them the education that they need to be able to talk properly about why they made the switch, uh, why this is better for their customers, um, and really connect with the people that are using our product in the end. Um, and I think that kind of uh, dedication to education and um, the amount of detail of care that we give to each consumer uh, really makes us stand out. So clearly you guys are focused on sustainability. You care about that. It's part of your brand. It's part of the decisions that you make for the business. But can you talk about maybe a specific example where, you know, the fact that you're a public benefit company, the fact that you are putting sustainability first maybe affected a business decision that you were making, whether it's deciding to partner with somebody or bring on an investor or something like that? So that's a great question. So there's a bit of a problem in this industry, and the problem is this concept called bioplastics, right? Bioplastics are made of PLA, which is a material that's based out of a cornstarch or sugarcane, right? And it's cheaper than than wood or paper products, but more expensive than traditional plastic products. And technically, it doesn't have any petroleum-based plastics in it. However, when it enters the environment, if it's not industrially composted, which there's not much industrial compost even in New York City, especially for disposable products when people take so many items to go, um, there's, it really isn't more sustainable than plastic straws. So a lot of different times we've had distributors, even some investors and you know restaurants tell us, like, okay, we love you guys, we love your mission, but why can't you guys produce these PLA items, these bioplastics? They're cheaper, they perform just like a plastic straw, and we would love to get them from you. And we've consistently said no to that. And the reason for that being that we are focused on backyard compostable items. We're focused on items that would decompose naturally in nature that do not require the output of external energy. And perhaps maybe we would have have had more more revenue or a bit more profitability if we were to to carry those products. But that's not meaningful for us because even to this day, as we begin to onboard new products, we are not focused on finding bioplastics. We are focused to being the leader in bioplastic alternatives. And that's what's honestly a huge thing for us right now. And uh, speaking of revenue, can you tell us how much revenue you've done to date over the last year? I'm not sure if we should I should do that. We've sold over 4.2 million straws at this point, okay. which has displaced over 3,900 pounds of plastic. Uh, and we're super proud of that number. And um, yeah. Yes, preventing plastic is a big part of what we do. It's actually one of the KPIs we measure. Um, it's not just for us, as you said. We're not just you know a numbers-oriented company focused on revenue and stuff, but it's about our impact. We are socially driven, and so we're a triple bottom line company focused on people, planet, and profit. Gotcha. So I have two follow-up questions to that then. Obviously, um, even I have noticed as somebody that doesn't know this space at all that it's gotten more competitive. At the very least, I notice paper straws now in every coffee shop and every bar. Clearly, more organizations care about it, or at the very least, the consumers care, so they have to care. So how are you guys staying competitive? And then what's the plan now to continue to grow? Are you guys bringing on investors? Uh, Are you guys growing the team? 
Yeah, so we're lucky enough to have received some investment from the Quake Capital Accelerator Program, which we got their commitment in December, and we are super excited to be able to do their accelerator program from February um, to May of this year, which which was a great commitment of fundraising. Um, and additionally, we won the NYU 300K Challenge in the Social Venture Track, which was a $50,000 grant, basically. Um, we won in this room exactly the uh, the Jets No Huddle Competition through NYU, which was $5,000, and then we were also in, you know, also in this room, uh, the SLP Program, which was $10,000 throughout the course of the summer. So, you know, we've raised some money externally and also through a couple angel investors, but we're more proud, I think, of the fact that we've raised 65K in non-dilutive grant funding because that is what's really going to help us out in the future because, you know, sometimes venture capital is hard, especially at a really young stage with a pretty low valuation. You know, you want to have the money that you need to scale, but you also want to have the money that is not going to dilute you and, you know, prevents you from being the leader of your mission in the future. Can you touch on that a little bit more about the difficulty of raising venture capital? And now you have the benefit of uh, some uh, hindsight of going out there and pitching different investors. Which types of investors are more receptive to what you guys are doing because you are uh, not the traditional sort of tech Silicon Valley SaaS kind of company? So which kind of investors are more receptive and how do you think you've been able to convince them to, to actually make an investment? Yeah, so industry experience has been super important for us, or even for you know a firm like Quake, having connections to other people in the industry has been super important in terms of proving that we are a venture-scaling asset. There are a lot of companies that are bought, even by the large players in this industry. Uh, one of our old customers and a big player of paper products on the East Coast is Imperial Did. They've made 17 acquisitions in their history. Uh, so you know a lot of companies in this space do get acquired, right? So we're looking for we have been looking for people that have that CPG experience but are also willing to take a step back and say, okay, these guys are not going to have the you know 90 plus percent margins of a tech company, but they are definitely an acquirable asset with a great brand and a lot of customers. And we're willing to take a chance on that because a bigger company is going to want to take them in the future. Would you say that brand has been a big reason why they're excited about you or are there other aspects? Well, I mean, I can elaborate on this more, but I think the brand is definitely something that's scalable based on what we do right now, right? If we continue to scale our operation, we're inevitably going to hit some supply troubles. We're inevitably going to be able, going to need to change things about the way the business is run in terms of hitting just the normal roadblocks that happen every day. But something that's intangible that we think really makes us uniquely fit to solve this problem is our connections to hospitality, sustainability, and brand. Yeah, I think our brand is, I mean, our brand, our Seashraws is our brand, like, um, and I think it's cool that all three of us as co-founders kind of live out that sustainability lifestyle and, like, are very on-brand co-founders. Um, I mean, people don't really, like, buy, people buy products because of, like, brand loyalty, right? Like, why you choose, like, one t-shirt over another is, like, brand a brand loyalty and like what their story is and what they stand for um and how you connect to that personally um so for us like yeah there are going to be paper straws in the market there are already a lot of different paper straw companies in the market and the reason that people choose us over just any other paper straw company or even another brand is what we stand for our um heart for sustainability education and advocacy which is what the c and c straw stands for um and uh just our commitment to helping people leave lead a more sustainable lifestyle in every aspect of their lives um, through our uh, email newsletter where we talk about the current news and how people can stay up to date with the plastic bans that are happening or on our Instagram where we talk not only about reducing plastic waste but also how you can go zero waste in other areas of your life like cooking and in your clothing choices. 
I think we forgot to touch on two really important reasons why VCs invested in us, and one being traction. Uh, we came through Quake through the college program and had really great traction for a college startup. Um, and for a startup in general, just a couple months old, uh, we've worked with major brands, including uh, we got a really great account through NYU with Aramark. So NYU is an incredible client for us um, and really turned the tide for us. Also had two LOIs with distributors, so kind of guaranteeing or... Letters of intent. Yes, uh, with two distributors. So we had some really great progress there. And then our nonprofit connections also really spoke to. But one thing we forgot to really touch on is the fact that the majority of our you know, revenue has actually come from inbound leads. Um, so we never really spent time really going out and saying, hey, like we need to source customers and have all these lead lists and stuff like that. We're, we were so busy with all the people coming to us, which was awesome. And I think they were really impressed with that. It really did you know, show the importance of having that branded product and that focus on sustainability. Um, and then another thing was really the team. They want, you know, they invest in you. They invest in that team. And, you know, we have really fun team background on how we all met, but you can also see really the passion and where we, each of us kind of plays into the company as a whole. I like that you mentioned that. Um, and, you know, a lot of people try to think about how do you create value, right? I mean, having IP, for example, is one way to create value. Brand, though, is another great way to create value because it's hard to just copy a brand. It's almost impossible, right? It's right. brand equity for a reason. Uh, it sounds like you've been able to create a marketing engine that works as well, getting inbound marketing leads. A venture investor is going to get really excited about that, right? Because that means you have customer acquisition at least somewhat figured out if you're getting a healthy flow of inbound leads. Uh, and again, that's value that you build. And obviously, the team, your ability to execute on sales and the relationships that you build, again, very difficult to replicate. A venture investor keeps all these things in mind because for them, that reduces risk in the company that you're creating. Well, yeah. Well, absolutely. And I think something else to touch on is the importance of our advisors. Um, and a lot of students are kind of don't really connect a lot with their professors. And it, in fact, it's been such a huge value add to see straws. One of my professors here at NYU is Jeffrey Hollander, who is the founder of Seven Generation. Um, and he's on our advisory board, even told us to put him on. Um, and he's been incredible advisors throughout the process, helping us, um, you know, make certain decisions, whether it's IP strategy or brand strategy and all of that. And so we have a really great advisory board. And that helps us when you know we need help on the inside but it also helps us when we're pitching um, to legitimize the company as well interesting to touch on that a little bit um, especially in the early days I mean obviously you guys are very resourceful uh, you've been able to win some actual rev like money grants from NYU and, and other areas we have been able to get to accelerators but it sounds like you've also been able to sort of plug in the holes and maybe lack of experience right or the fact that you're pretty new at this how did you attract those advisors I mean obviously once you're taking off and you have a bunch of traction it does get easier but what'd you do to attract those advisors and mentors early on yeah, if we talk about our initial advisors, so the ones that we got on when we initially needed an advisory board in the second or third month of the company, I mean, those were all school professors, right? Those were all university professors. So it was basically two of my favorite professors that, you know, have consistently given us great advice to this day, really helped us win 300K challenge in terms of our effort with that. Um, it was Jeffrey Hollander and... Well, Dan Porter was also a little bit... He wasn't on our advisory board, but he was a really great advisor. I was taking his entrepreneurship class that fall, actually. And so every week I would email him something 
something about sea straws, whether it was a problem or kind of advice here and there. Um, and each week he would email me back as if he was an advisor. And so he, we've been chatting with him throughout the process as well. So speaking of that, though, um, you mentioned how you've been up, you were updating people that you wanted to have in your circle and making sure they're aware of things that have going on, how they can support you. Yep. It seems like over the last year, a lot of things have gone well for you and a lot of things have gone in the right direction. Can you talk about maybe a recent fire that you've had that you've had to put out where things were not going well? You were running around trying to figure out how we're going to solve this and how you solve that problem? Because we know it's not easy. They're deciding right now which thing to tell us about, <laughs> what to disclose I'm publicly. Sure there's, always there's, there, there's always problems. Um, Just the one, one recent one that you can remember that you can tell us specifically how you solved it. Uh-oh, here we go. They're in the hot seat. Don't be shy. People admit everything on this show. Uh, so. Antonio put me in the hot seat here. <laughs> um, so we came into SLP like we were ready to take off. But, and we thought we were awesome and like doing great things. And we were. But one of the things we forgot... Or not really forgot, we just didn't have time to really focus on it at that point, didn't really need to because we had so many inbound leads, was developing a scalable sales strategy for outbound um, and really kind of getting to know our customers and figuring out that customer acquisition cost. And I will tell you, we don't have it figured out just yet, but we're in the process of it. So I've spent the last four or five weeks now really digging into that process and figuring out, you know, who should we be reaching out to, what kind of processes work better, whether it's cold calling, cold emails, maybe it's, I need warm introductions, um, and what type of introductions can get me places. And, you know, based off of which customer we want to target to, do we want to go through restaurants and do more of a pull-through system and to get distributors? Do we want to just sell directly to restaurants? Or do we want to just target, you know, local, regional distributors, or, you know, national. So uh, it's been a really tough process, and, you know, we're still in the thick of it, but we've gotten some really great feedback and um, really great information out of it. And, you know, I did several, like, hundreds of sales calls and sales emails. So really kind of experimenting is important there. So one of the things about venture capital is that when you get it, you really feel like a pressure, like you need to grow, right? And, you know, this is one of the things that Sophie's talking about is that, you know, we are at the point where we have, we've had the same distributors for a long time now. We've continued to grow within them, but we're at the point where we're really needing to make this into a venture scaling asset because, you know, investors are looking for five or six year exits, right? So if we're already past year one, we're technically 20% of the way there. I think we're definitely 20% of the way there, probably a bit further. Uh, but, you know, we want to be able to continue to grow and we need to do things exponentially, right? So as a young, you know, founder and young founding team as a whole, really finding the ways to scale the organization and be able to say, okay, now we have some money. What are we going to spend it on? Uh, now we have some traction. Who are we going to target? Like all these things are kind of, uh, had kind of added up. And I think really finding what is, what is the next steps and keeping ourselves organized has been super important. As a young founder, especially people that you know, are in school, um, it's really tough to really have an excellent schedule where everything is mapped up properly, especially because there are days when things just aren't going your way. And I think at this point, you really want to be able to say, okay, I know that I want to get this accomplished. I have this overall goal, but to get there, I'm going to take baby steps. And if you think about the conversation we just had over the past 40 minutes, all we've been saying is, okay, we took this step, A, that's led to B, and then led to C, and then led to D. It's been a very linear process from the moment that me and Echo had our first meeting. And I think we'd want to continue it that way. And also just surrounding ourselves with the right people. I mean, we just onboarded an incredible new advisor who has 30-plus years of industry expertise in food service particularly who's going to actually help us you know, make our sales strategy just that much better and really just um, 
really excited to work with him now. Well, it sounds like you're making a lot of the right decisions. I mean, look, entrepreneurship is supposed to be messy. If you're getting into it thinking it's going to be great, I'm going to become rich and drive a Ferrari, maybe that'll happen, but there's going to be a lot of things that happen between that point uh, when you get started and when you're in that Ferrari that are actually really messy, that are uncomfortable, where you have to do a lot of learning, where you have to do a lot of sort of outbound work, and or even if it's inbound, right, you still have to know how to manage that, where you kind of have to break things apart and fix them as they're going along. And I think uh, Reed Hoffman of LinkedIn compared uh, entrepreneurship as trying to assemble an airplane while he's skydiving or something, right? I'm yep, probably butchering <laughs> that statement. But that's yep. a really good way of putting it. But at the same time, clearly, you know, even though you guys are a young team, you leverage the experience that you already had. And you're obviously, it sounds to me like having a pretty good time learning as you're going along, or maybe a terrible, you're like, you guys are looking at each so. other. We <laughs> hate each other already, is, is the I said no. But um, you're, you're having a good time, at the very least, probably a much better time than you would have working for somebody else right now or having some other internship where you're getting coffee. I think so. Thank you so much for coming here to listen to this live recording of the Sea Straws episode of The Mentors. Antonio, Sophia, Echo, thank you so much for coming on the show and best of luck to you. Thank you. Thank you.